humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 224, and I had a conversation with my dear friend, Mark Islam. He is Los Angeles based, and this conversation took place in May, so right around the beginning of the uh, shutdown. And uh, this episode is really all about the interesting people Mark has met. He knows everyone. It's crazy. He knows everyone and has such great stories, and he tells a couple stories on on this, and and he's delightful. Uh, He refers to a couple movies that he had seen. They're Belgium movies. One he talked about was the Ardennes, and he couldn't remember the name of the other one. And uh, it's called The Broken Circle Breakdown. So I just wanted to cover that because he brought it up and couldn't remember the name. Uh, Speaking of which, of course, things that we talk about in episodes, I'm going to have all the things on the links page that we uh, refer to for you to go and and check out there on heyhumanpodcast.com. I wanted to uh, bring up something. I did a project with my friend Sammy under the name Muskrats, M-U-S-C-R-A-T-Z, and it's a little encouragement to get people out to vote. It's a song that we wrote and we made a video for, and there's a YouTube for it, so definitely go (laughs) check that out. It is uh, not safe for work, although since everybody works at home, I suppose you can, you, you get to watch it at work because working is now in your home office. So it's just, it's got swear words in it. <clears throat> so nothing too crazy, but just a heads up about that. And I'll put a link to that as well there on uh, the links page. Uh, usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook my personal social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Susan Ruthism. Uh, you can find out more about me at susanruth.com and join the mailing list. And that website, susanruth.com, of course, has my music and art and all that kind of fun stuff and acting things and this, that, and the other. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Send me uh, ideas for shows or say hi that kind of thing, please do that. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Uh, There is a contribute button on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. This is an ad-free podcast. If you feel like helping to contribute to keep this show going, uh, please do so there. And I appreciate that very much. I already mentioned the links page. There's a section for every episode that has ever been on Hey Human. And I curate that specifically to... Uh, bring you lots of other information on top of the episode itself. There's merch now, Hey Human merch. So if you have always wanted to have that Hey Human merch or maybe some of my artwork uh, on a t-shirt or on a note card or a bag or whatever, definitely go uh, check that out. You can find it on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. Again, on the merch button and be taken to Art of Wear where you can do some shopping. So that's awesome. Very excited about that new thing. I'm super excited for next week's episode. It's with Dr. Erin McDonald. She's an astrophysicist and she consults for Star Trek, which is so freaking cool. What a brain. What a nice woman. I really enjoyed the conversation. So I'm excited for you to hear that on episode 225. We are trucking along on these. Okay, uh, that's it. Let's get into this. Thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, Stay safe, be well, love you, and uh, yeah, here we go. Mark Islam, it is delightful to see you. Welcome to Hey Human. Well, thank you for having me on Hey Human. It is delightful to see you as well. Uh, It's been too long. I miss you. Oh, I miss you back. Um, You know, I think that we met almost a year ago and um yeah i mean almost a year ago you were in the process of coming to la and you know we went to do some music things together and some improv things together and you know kind of thought that was how the rest of the year would take form and now we're stuck at home it's nice to chat with you like really one of the last times one of the last times I was out, I was out 
with actually no the very last time the very last time i was out i was out with you which was to see that country band from nashville when um octavia spencer and allison janney were also in that little club that's right my friend danny myrick and his uh buddy travis howard have a fantastic (laughs) band and that was, was that was the best night oh my god i danced my ass off yeah, I know, I know, and that was the last time anybody went out, I think. Yeah, and Octavia, Octavia was so nice. She's a lovely lady. As yeah. They were all were up on the dance floor yeah. dancing, and Alison Janney can cut a rug, what? I know. <laughs> Fellow Todd girl out there, moving it, busting the moves. <laughs> I love it. And the guy that I was dancing with a lot, that's um, apparently... After the night was over, my friend Meg, who's married to Danny, she said, do you know who you were dancing with most of the night? I said, no. She said, oh, that's Kix Brooks' son. I was like, I had no idea. He's a really, if you're listening out there in the world, you're a great dancer. It was super fun. And he taught me some some cool moves that I didn't know. So <laughs> That's right. What a fun night. Well, it's good to see I'm, you. And I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing you in real life again as well. <laughs> What I love about you so much, and and it speaks to what you were just talking about, how when we met, we met because mutual friends of ours told me I should meet you because you're here in L.A. And you were so kind and gracious, and we met for coffee, and immediately fell madly in love with you. I just think you're the best, and I just, you were so open and loving, and immediately wanted to introduce me to people, and that's just, it's a rare Well, L.A., I know what it's like. I moved to L.A. in 1990, and I didn't know a soul, and I didn't really have any, I didn't have much direction, you know, except I kind of knew that I wanted to write songs, I wanted to... Uh, sing and I wanted to be around musicians but I didn't know anybody so when I came to LA I stayed you know in a motel I, I didn't even know anybody to stay on their couch and I stayed you know in a motel for like a week or two until I found an apartment and then you know I just started to meet people but it's not that easy in LA so I have a big sort of um sense of obligation when newcomers come up to LA because it is so daunting just the whole you know how spread out it is and how spread out everybody else is and um you know if you I know what it's like to be the new kid in town and so yeah I wanted I I I I I also had an interest in what your trajectory was gonna be (laughs) Because what is your story arc, you know, from arriving here, getting situated, you know, in a living situation and going about the things that you were setting about, like Second City, which I thought was a brilliant, because I tell people who, I tell people all the time to do improv training, even if they're not interested in like acting or comedy or anything like that, because I just think of it, even though I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) You should. You know, they're doing online classes right now during the (laughs) shut-in, so. Yeah. Thinking very quickly on your feet is a good skill to have. Oh, that's a beautiful... Is that in your backyard or is that the neighbor's yard behind you? There's a beautiful purpley... Well, that's the neighbor's yard behind. Okay. Adjacent. The neighborhood is called Rainier Village. It's sort of adjacent to Culver City, sort of adjacent to Beverly Wood. It's like around the 10 freeway at Robertson. Beverly uh, Wood, I love that. Yeah, kind of. Well, Beverly, yeah, I love Beverly Wood. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into your your beginnings. Where did you grow up and uh, childhood type stuff? Uh, did you have did you have aspirations way back about music and things like that, or what, what shaped you along the way? Well, I, well, where I where I grew up, I grew up in Newcastle, Delaware. Um, I grew up in the 70s and I was very much into radio and music and my records and learning songs and learning piano at first and then guitar. Um, I'm not really sure that I had musical aspirations, but I loved certain figures who, you know, taught me, you know, just by listening to their records, you know, I learned a lot about music. Um, But my 
actual, I guess, high school, I thought I was going to end up being a high school English teacher. And that sort of began, like, when I was going to school, when I was going to college, those were all my essays were about, you know, I'm going to major in English and I'm going to teach high school English, which I suppose if I would have done, I might be sort of, you know, early retirement at this point. I might be. You would have been a great English teacher. You would have been a fun one to have. I probably should have done that. You know, (laughs) I never, I never did do it. You know, I know. I mean, I did take the like credential for out here, but I never did do it. You know, I came out here. I started, I, you know, I just, I, (laughs) in the nineties, I mean, when I, when I moved out here, I, like I said, I didn't know anybody when I got out here. I had my guitar. I had, you know, this briefcase of songs, you know, that I had written and, you know, some I tried to record. Um, And I was just, you know, setting about trying to, you know, network and also to play, perform, to get better. And it was a different scene than it is now. Um, Like when I got to L.A., there, I mean, it wasn't like the 70s where it was the hoot night at the Troubadour, but there was a songwriter scene. And on any given night of the week, you could go out and you could open mic, you could, you know, see great songwriters perform great acoustic acts. It was just, you know, and we traveled around in packs, like through the 90s. And a lot of people ended up moving to Nashville in the mid-90s. I I started going there, um, but I never, like even fully I never fully lived there I would stay there for periods of time what made you move to Los Angeles in the first place well what made me move was I was going to write songs oh okay so that that was the plan it was was really music it was really music and then I was just it was a I don't know it's a nutty time I first you know through the 90s I was an office temp I was an envelope stuffer I was um you know, a film extra, an audience person. And, you know, I was just also out there doing music and I was recording on, you know, making my demos. And, you know, then the internet came along and made it so that you could put out your own CDs and, you know, you didn't necessarily need to have a gatekeeper. And, um, you know, so that's kind of what I was doing. And that's what I did do. Um, you know, I made two albums on my own and um, then when the shelf life of those was over I I started working in television so you know in the in the OOs I got a job as a transcriber on the Dr. Phil show the first season of it and um, that kind of was my beginning in learning about broadcast you know from the other side which was you know, what was a little nutty is that, um, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I went to see some psychic in Nashville um, when I was there because I was doing theater in Nashville. And everybody, like, was booking appointments with this British lady who um, was in town and she would read you. So I sat with her. And she, like, held my wristwatch. And she said, like, I see you working on a long... I see I see you working, like, not in front of the camera, behind the camera. And I see you on a really long-running show. Which was so crazy, because I had not done anything yet. And I actually thought the show, when I got that sort of out of the blue offer to do Dr. Phil, which was so entry level, I mean, transcribing on the graveyard ship, I thought, well, okay, this might be, this might be like the long running show. But then, um, actually, as it turned out, that show would be The Amazing Race that I am working on. um, How did you get into that? Because you've been on that a long time, yeah? Craigslist. I got that job from Craigslist. No way. Uh, I had been, um, right before that, I had been working on a reality show um, 
it profiled people who'd been addicted uh, and who had gotten their lives together. It was called A Second Look, and it ran on Style Network. And I was only supposed to be on it for about, like, three months, and I ended up working on it and, you know, until the end. And then I had nothing happening, and I um, answered a Craigslist ad for something really entry-level, transcribing again, and I, you know, took it, and I loved it. Like, that job was, like, you know traveling without leaving my seat you know i was just watching people race around like iceland or senegal or you know like just kind of i thought it was really educational i loved it and then i ended up you know staying for a long time you know in different capacity yeah and you were about to start the new season when all this happened I was about to start. I know you and I was telling you about it. You and I were coming back from Santa Barbara to where we saw J.D. Selder together. Yeah. And I was getting so excited to be going back to work. And we would have been starting season 33, I believe. That's extraordinary. 33. I know. And then they called me like two days later and said, don't come in. Because... They've halted production. So I suppose I should have taken it, the whole COVID thing, maybe a little more seriously than I did because, I mean, that would have demonstrated just how serious it is if they actually halted production. But at that time, I was thinking it might be a couple weeks. Yeah, I don't think anybody knew. Yeah. And I had no idea it would be months of living like this. Of I mean... I don't know what's going to happen with um, (laughs) the state of production. Yeah, and I think that maybe it is just going to teach everybody to get back to fundamentals and get back to basics and learn how to bake. (laughs) (laughs) I heard they were, people were running out of flour because everyone... You can't find, well, I don't know now, but I had a hard time finding flour. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even baking. I just ran out, you know. Yeah. Like, but everybody, everybody is baking, and apparently the social influencers now are the people who teach you how to bake. You know? <laughs> we live in a very strange world. People say, "Oh, we'll never go back to normal," but I was thinking about this earlier today that it's not our first pandemic rodeo in the world. We've had oh. others, and things do eventually go back. To normal we f- we forget that we're in the panic and the fear part of it that things do go back i mean after the uh the black plague after the the 1918 flu after you know eventually things even out they they find their equilibrium yeah, yeah. i mean that's what everybody's hoping um, yeah you know like in 2020 I thought I was going to be sitting like in a lot of film festivals or working or, you know, in the American Cinematheque or in different concert halls or whatever. Like, I had no idea that I would be talking about second waves of things that might coincide with next season's flu. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's weird. It's very weird. Well, let's get back to you. I mean, life used to be more interesting. I mean, that's very interesting, but life used to be a different kind of interesting. It's true. (laughs) And I do believe it'll it'll get back there. And and, uh, hopefully the distrust and the anger and the craziness will also abate, I hope. Uh, I like to say... Well, that's the sad thing to see is the distrust of information. I mean, the distrust of expertise... The distrust of academia, the distrust of all, that is very hard to take. Because yeah. that actually often has me feeling like I'm the crazy one. <laughs> Wait, you know you're not I mean? the crazy one? This all- <laughs> yeah. Like, I would like to think that I'm not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I spend a lot of time wondering if, in fact, you know, how do I have all this wrong? You know, like sure. it, it's like the whole country is gaslighting us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I, I just recently saw that movie because now we have um, so much time. I have disappeared into a t- 
Turner classic movies rabbit hole. Oh, and I Gap. forgot that was a movie. That's yeah, that no, ex- that's a movie, and that's where that expression comes from. I always forget and, that. Yeah, and, and, and she gets gaslit by her husband. You know, she's the one who actually has the money and the power, and he, like, kind of has her second-guessing her every single intention until she's you know (laughs) yeah i feel like a lot of my dating history has prepared me for this yeah (laughs) (laughs) so it's okay (laughs) i am curious what this is gonna do for um dating yeah me last night last night i was watching this thing on like is there going to be a coronavirus baby boom and i just can't think of a less erotic time you know, like, I can't think of a time where people are, like, more, are less in the mood, you know. I don't be- know. I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin. I'm so in the mood. <laughs> well, I think it's, like, it's just kind of like if just the joblessness. Yeah. Uncertainty. I mean, for having a child, being in the mood, you know, being in the mood, yeah. I'm not I mean, in the mood for having a child, like, but I'm yeah, in the mood for the things. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I get you. I get for you. For practicing, you. for sure, but not for actually having. <laughs> for going through the motions, as it were. I mean, at this point, I don't even want to have seasonal allergies. Oh, gosh, you know, no. I know. A baby. I just you know? we need the gerbil from the boy in the the gerbil ball from the boy in the bubble and just go out in these giant. We're all the boy in the bubble now. I mean, I think so. <laughs> all right, let's get back to you. Did you grow up in a um, creatively supportive family, or were they more academic? I grew up in a very academic family. My father was a doctor, and my brother, who was three years older was very smart and he became a doctor but he was the one who um you know he was the one who set the bar my older brother so i had a lot to live up to because i was his younger brother and i you know i lived up somewhat i didn't live up entirely because you know he was straight a i was not quite straight a um but I didn't grow up in the kind of house that sang at the dinner table or, you know, necessarily, um, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't grow up in a creative house. I grew up in a more scientific house, I think. Um, and my father was from Bangladesh. He was an immigrant to this country. So, you know, it's not like he was going to be introducing me necessarily to the music of Hank Williams um, or any of those people. But, um, you know, he did give me a piano and piano lessons, and he did give me a guitar and guitar lessons. So I guess it was creatively supported that way. And I sang in the chorus and choirs and things. Um so it was supported that way and but if i had been um engaged in sports they would have been supportive that way too like you know i liked roller skating for a number of years in the 70s and so i did a lot of that and they were always around for that or the swim team and things so i mean you know i had a pretty traditional suburban childhood did you go to the roller rinks i went to the roller rinks and um that's why when we saw J.D. Souther, um, so many memories of being at the roller rink, the Christiana roller rink, and hearing either You're Only Lonely by him or any of those songs that he co-wrote with the Eagles because we would have like skated frontwards, backwards, in couples to things like New Kid in Town and you know, Heartache Tonight, and all of those songs. So, um, but as a kid, I just loved, loved a good song. Oh, yeah. I became very intoxicated with good songwriting um, very early on. Like, um, you know, but I grew up with people like Carole King on the radio and James Taylor and... Carly Simon and 
those were people that I gravitated to. And Linda Ronstadt, who sang a lot of great songwriters and Eagles. Um, and then a lot of even like a lot of the pop singers like, you know, Barbara Streisand and Melissa Manchester and Bette Midler and those people who chose great songs. Um, so I was always tuned in on it. Is it weird to think that you grew up loving these troubadours and these crafters of song, and now as an adult, like you've hung out with Carly Simon, you've hung out with uh, with Linda Ronstadt, you've hung. Is that surreal for you, or is it just part? Well, of the- it is always surreal for me. It is. Um, I mean, it's just peculiar. Some of the interactions I've had with a lot of people who have been my heroes. Um, I I don't know how it quite all happened that, you know, I, you know, got to interact with so many, but that's kind of the way things happen when you, you know, move to someplace like LA and you are not a wallflower, you know, like I don't stay in. <laughs> I do now, I do now, but I didn't, uh, you know, I mean, I always was grateful to be in this environment, you know what I mean? Like, here's my favorite L.A. story. Like, this, this is L.A. to me. One day, I was sitting in Starbucks in West Hollywood, and this older guy sat like in one of the comfy chairs next to me and we started talking i had a t-shirt that said boston university and he asked if i attended boston university and i said yeah i did and he told me that his brother taught there and um we had a conversation about everybody in his family who had taught in these prestigious institutions in the Boston, you know, Harvard, MIT, BU. And so as I was talking to him, I <laughs> I started to figure out like he did not, so I said, I, I, go, I go, it sounds to me like you didn't follow the family footsteps, that you did not become an academic or a professor or work in that field. And he goes, and he says, he goes, no, I was a horse of a different stripe. He said, I became a photographer and a record producer. And so I said, did you produce any records I would have heard? He says, most of them, probably not. But my 15 minutes of fame came with American Pie by Don McLean. And so, like... That's L.A., that the person sitting next to you in L.A. could have produced American Pie. You know what I mean? So, yes, L.A. is definitely that. I was in the Aroma Coffee Shop and uh, having a cup of coffee, and there was this man sitting in the corner, and I thought, there's something about him. He had, uh, you know, he's wearing a nice uh, suit type, nice button-up shirt, and he had a cravat, and, you know, there was, he was very distinguished looking, and it turned out to be uh, uh, Quinn, it turned out to be the guy that wrote The Deer Hunter. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I go to a deli where you might see Brian Wilson of Beach Boys, you might see... Uh, John Voight, you might see like um, Michael DeBar, and like any number, like one of the guys from Kiss, you know, like it's just, yeah. LA is nuts. My uh, ex roommate, Jen, and I, we had, we had about a two week streak where every day we went out, we would see someone famous. It was hilarious. Yeah. Who were who have been your biggest celebrity sightings? Oh my gosh! Okay, um, we saw uh, Wendy Malik, also at Aroma. Yeah, um, at Aroma is is been quite the hot spot. Uh, Paul Rudd was at Aroma. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, uh, all the Brady Bunch kids were at Vitalis. All of them. All of them. Yep. At the same time. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was when I had first arrived here. I can't remember if I was living here yet, but I had first arrived here. And I was at Vitello's for lunch over on uh, uh, over in Studio City, and apparently they were filming their um, 
reunion. Yeah, for the because the, the, H- the, 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 yeah. the house was re- restored. Yeah, yeah. So that was wild. I've seen Gene Simmons, um, Daniel Radcliffe. Um, These are great ones. <laughs> yeah, tons. I mean, the list is very long. And what I love, and and I would say that Nashville is also good at this. I mean, to me, celebrity is interesting in that, oh, you've got an interesting job, but you know me, I'm more interested in who you are as a person, not what you do. And so it's never, I've never been, as they call them, the star fuckers. That doesn't interest me so much. Uh, And I noticed that a lot of these people are left alone in these scenarios, which is great. It's how it was in Nashville, too. I've been, I was in coffee shops with, you know, Nicole Kidman and and, uh, Keith Urban and, you know. They are always underfoot in Nashville. I know. Yeah, I had lovely conversation with Naomi Judd, who's very, she's so funny. She's such a mom. She was, she was very motherly to me and lovely. And, you know, Garth Brooks in the guitar shop and famous, what I like about the famous people that don't really give a shit that they're famous they're just like that's what i do that's that's oh, my no. that's my job and they don't buy into their own stuff which i think is great i think that there is maybe a guardedness to some of them because they don't know if you're crazy <laughs> but for the most part that's what i really appreciated about uh alice and Janney on the dance floor is she just is like fuck it i'm dancing i'm at a bar with really great music and i'm gonna have fun and which is how it should be. And it's, you. I don't know about you, but I find myself even getting protective of them when other people don't respect their space, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I guess that is a thing to navigate. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, the, the cult of celebrity has is, is always fascinated me and just how people react to it, which is in some ways perhaps how we've gotten into this bit of a mess in this country is the cult of personality but i suppose that's been growing we can't just blame it on one on one season <laughs> that's been growing for well, a you long know what's time. kind of interesting anymore is that there are other ways to be a celebrity now yeah um so like now you can be a, a celebrity on instagram for modeling things or you could be a celebrity on YouTube for teaching how to do makeup mm-hmm. or um, doing talk shows or things, you know. Um, they're just other avenues to becoming famous. Mm-hmm. Like, there are a lot of people I just I just don't know anymore, you know. Yeah. I'm not tapped into all of <laughs> I mean, now you can be TikTok famous. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true, yeah. Who are some of the the more memorable experiences you had? The the for example, you have great Carly Simon story. You have a great Linda Ronson. One of my most favorite people on the planet. You uh, have hung out with Angela Lansbury, who I adore. Uh, are there any stories you want to share with some of those people, or that you've? Well, I think like well, all those people. The thing is, like for celebrity and like how I think about it like those those are really you know those have been some the biggest ones but I kind of think like anybody who manages to make a living in the business is a celebrity but um you know Angela is somebody that um my friend Steven knows so I have gone to you know dine with her and things when she um would invite him over so i would go as his plus one and um i've had very memorable dinners where she's cooked you know (laughs) and they're just thinking my word i adore her i think she's great for me she's up there with shannon mclean i just i adore the (laughs) the energy and and the humor and the sassiness and i think you told me a funny angela lansbury story about acting if i remember correctly that she imparted on you (laughs) steve we were at some event and steven had asked her how she managed to remain so gracious meeting person after person after person telling you know story after story after story to her and she had actually stayed at this thing for longer than she had to so, like, basically, she had talked to anybody that wanted to say hello to her. And he's like, how did you 
managed to say so polite and she goes it's called acting <laughs> i just thought i mean those are things that i have learned there's somebody else that i interacted with who i mean that was that was a little bit of a life lesson just that like it's called acting you know like i in some ways took that to heart and you know now think about that like in real life you know and there's somebody else who taught me a similar kind of lesson another actress Karen Black who is no longer with us and um, one thing we haven't discussed is that for seven years I had hosted and produced a monthly charity show a songwriter night in LA and it raised it was free and it raised money for different locally based nonprofit organizations and we did it every month and the second show we ever did we had Karen Black who i love and um she had forgotten to get a guitar player so i ended up becoming her guitar player and her harmony singer and you know when i showed up for like a week's worth of rehearsals with her to do three songs on my little free charity night um you know we were going through we were having, uh, what is the tempo what is the key where do i sing with you what are the actual finalized lyrics and things i made the mistake of referring to all of that entire process as rehearsal she says to me and this is like i do apply this to life um she says to me this is not rehearsal that is not rehearsal you get it to as as good as it can be to where you're going to perform it and that's where rehearsal starts oh wow <laughs> so those are the things that you like learn from pros those are the things because i've heard that like even from angela has talked about when you show up on a set you expect the costume designer to be an utmost professional you expect whoever is the assistant director is going to be an utmost professional you're expecting your co-stars to be i mean and that's and when i go to work that's what i expect and that's what i expect to deliver you know i when i go to work i think i'm part of a team and i have to make this you know to make it good for myself i have to make it good for everybody you know and i have to anticipate and i have to you know i have to uh, have some sort of professionalism to you know ensure my own to sustain my own profession you know? what is your role on amazing race my title on Amazing Race is I'm an associate producer. I work with the producers and the editors and the you know director and executives, and we you know they go out, they run the race, and the footage comes back, and we turn it into um, 42 minute episodes. So it's you know like a storytelling job, and I'm a little bit you know I, I kind of prepare things, so I go through the footage with everybody else, and I sort of to help determine what might be useful what might what, what, what oh, are going to be hold on what are, sorry the blue angels are going over are you serious yeah wow are you going to run outside and go see them no i, I just bet the, they're they're going over right now it's so loud oh they'll i don't probably, hear them. they'll probably be over your neighborhood soon They've oh, been, I don't hear that. They've been going over people over different state, you know, over cities and different states. So as a thank you to the uh, healthcare workers. Yes, correct. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I couldn't no. hear you. So again, <laughs> uh, associate producer helping the. <laughs> yeah, no. So, uh, so I'm an associate producer, and I I work. Um, it's essentially a storytelling job. I work with the editors. I work with the producers, and I work with the directors and the network to you know turn all of this mountain of footage into 42 minute episodes and how many That's, per episode how much footage gets wheedled down i mean it, it is tons i i mean it is tons because there's so many cameras you know it's not just one set of cameras it is 
numerous and um you know they're just doing so many crazy things too and um you know you have to put it together um like a a whole season so you know everybody is like not just thinking about their own episodes but they're thinking about a whole season's worth of storytelling you know how long are the different teams staying in and um you know does anything play off later on do certain alliances matter um you know did somebody make a fatal flaw early on that's gonna like take a little while to pay off those kinds of things um and just you know you just have to have it make sense and you have to make it be amazing (laughs) because like they're doing these amazing things like when you're bungee jumping off a bridge in Tanzania, you know, or you're climbing a rock in Vietnam and rappelling down another side and then getting on a, you know, a boat and, you know, running through a cave. I mean, these are just, or you're like in India and you're learning a Bollywood choreographed routine. I mean, these are just like, it's just... uh, I marvel that it gets pulled off season after season after season because it's just like, you know, people are really challenged. I, do you know, as you're watching it, to you and your co-workers, obviously you don't know who's going to win at the end until you've seen, until you've done the whole arc of the, of the show, but in the beginning do you think, oh, I bet you so-and-so. Do you have those ideas in your mind or you, do you just go tabula rasa and let it unfold for yourself as well? Well, I mean, they go out and they, I mean, we all have all the footage by the time I work in post-production, so I'm not part of, like, the course. I'm in an office when the tapes come in. So by that time, it has been run. And, you know, we kind of have a sense of how long people stay in and how, you know, things play out through a whole arc when you're selecting contestants what kind of fortitude are you looking i imagine that they go through psychological testing and physical testing and oh they're vetted they're really vetted by a casting department i'm not really part of that i sort of hear some of it but um you know they're vetted for it based on a whole bunch of different criteria some are scouted they do these like casting calls and people submit and um i mean the one one thing i will say about the race is that it's harder than it looks on television because it is so much running it is so much physical strength um mental strength um even some of the waiting around just to get to the next place and the transit and then being dropped in a country where the language is so completely different and um, every interaction is a challenge like it's a brilliant idea Um, which is why it's won so many emmys (laughs) and i mean it's a i it's a it's a marvel that it's pulled off every single season that it's gone i mean they've done so many memorable things and um been to so many places i mean like some i've never even heard of like oman you know (laughs) like i never heard of oman until i worked on the amazing race um so uh you know what are your plans uh forthcoming um as you look let's take the virus out of it but where where is your story arc heading well, that is actually a good question because I thought I'd be working now. And I thought that I, um, I you know, I don't, there, there have been a lot of different uh, sort of speculative projects that, you know, I've been attached to here and there. Like, there was a, is, is a documentary project on a British rock and roll photographer in Corinthia West. Um, um, it's been picked up by an Icelandic production company and at some point 
I would like to be picked up with that project. You know, um, I have uh, worked with her. I've videotaped her, and you know, kind of you know followed her around with just my iPhone and stuff. And um, you know, so I would kind of like to be maybe working on that. Um, I ha- I thought I'd be working now. I I, I now am recalibrating I suppose now you know it's looking in on the people who need to be looked in on um, doing errands for them or making sure you know things run you know not just myself um, older people um my plans are really now just to sustain I mean otherwise you know I could be doing any number of things like anybody else like I could be traveling I could be in a car if I, if I were to take a notion to you know load up some things to take to my Nashville apartment nothing would have stopped me from doing it but now even that it's like do I even want to go there if the restrictions are maybe not so healthy? You know, maybe, you know what I mean? That Like, if they're opened up more liberally than we are, um, that might be riskier. So, like, every single thing, like, makes me just want to <laughs> isolate further. You know? Yeah, and you do take care of a, a handful of people. I I know, yeah. and yeah, I'm, you I'm know more people than people. anyone I know. You know everyone, firstly. I know a lot of people for somebody who did not move out here knowing anyone. Right. And somehow, a lot of that is from just like being in the songwriter community in LA. Then when I was hosting and producing Grassroots Acoustica. Like, that was every month putting together lineups of people. Um, and you raised a lot of money with that for charity. We yeah. raised, we never charged a cover. We never had a minimum donation. But we raised just a little bit more than $75,000 for different charities. And they were such, the, the real criminal thing is that I did not videotape them. Mm-hmm. I should have, because they were memorable. There were a lot of people that I admired who came through and played that little show for free you know like um, Gretchen Peters great songwriter from oh, yeah. like Wendy Waldman great songwriter from out here who also had Nashville um, on her resume um, a lot of people who had hits when I was growing up there's a guy named Alan O'Day who had a big hit of his own called Undercover Angel. But he also wrote a bunch of other big hits at the time like Angie Baby and Rock and Roll Heaven. And he did our show a lot. And he was so great. He's no longer with us. Like that's what I'm saying. Like like I should have videotaped them. And in and actually in his case there was somebody who came down um to see some show that Alan was on and it turned out to be his final appearance. And this guy did videotape it from the audience. And, you know, like, there are things, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there are things like that that um, should have been preserved <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah. I, because that show, it wasn't necessarily... It, was, it wasn't necessarily scripted, but it was meant to be like themed so you know if it was like let's say you have albums coming out this year I would have a lineup of people who had albums coming out or if you were from out of town it would be a lineup of people out of town or we'd like get around one particular musician and you know work up their catalog um so it was a little bit like a community theater and um it was great fun. It was also a little bit of like the little engine that could because what we were always up against was like, is this venue going to close? 
you know, from the beginning. So when we first started, we started in one little coffee house on Sepulveda called Synergy. And then, like, we, when that became a wine bar, we moved around. And then this place called The Talking Stick opened, and it had a perfect space, a really versatile space that we could use for, like, acoustic shows or bigger, like, if we want to have a band, you know, we could just configure it differently. And it was awesome because it was run by these people who just, like, let us have run of it. And, and it wasn't just our show. It was every night of the week somebody had a show there that was great. So we settled into Talking Stick, but it was always like, is this place going to exist for a long time? You know, is there a plan B in case this place, you know, goes out of business? But it hung on for, you know, like five years, six years. And, um, you know, we did a lot of shows. Yeah. And they were, they were always like... You know, when you had, because it was charitable, and that kind of gave it a whole different intention than just, you know, I'm going to play the same songs I've been playing for a long time. I mean, and so I was very, very proud of that whole series when it was happening. I was, we were all, because it wasn't just me. It was like there were people who worked with me and made that show, you know, the sound people and the people who, like, ran the merch table and the people who worked on promoting it and everything. Like, that, we were like machines. And we just had that, because it was like, okay, this one's put away, now there's next month and the month after that and the month after that. And... You know, through all of that, I met a lot of people. <laughs> How did you get involved with the world of wonder and RuPaul folks? Craigslist again. <laughs> really? That was such a fun party that you took me to. I had such an amazing time that night. Well, that was... Um, I worked at World of Wonder Productions on a bunch of different TV shows in, like, around 2005. And I had just started at Race. I did season six of Amazing Race and had wrapped for hiatus. And I had gotten hired to work on um, Showdog Moms and Dads at uh, uh, World of Wonder. And then that led to something else and then something else after that. And then I would go back whenever I was on hiatus from Race. But um, I had... What was odd about World of Wonder was while I was first getting started there and I was looking around at like the posters of RuPaul and I was like looking around at some of these other people I was working with, I was thinking that it had some kind of familiarity to it already. Like, I had gotten this job from a Craigslist ad, just like I had gotten Amazing Race. I had answered an ad, I had gone to interview, but when I got hired and I was sitting at my desk and I was looking around, I thought there was something familiar. And then I realized that my best friend in Nashville, who is my neighbor in Nashville, I have a place there, um, he is now a professor but he had been a drag queen in Atlanta with RuPaul and he was like and all those people were Atlanta people and um, even Randy and Fenton of World of Wonder they had a band called the Pop-Tarts and um, you know they were affiliated with RuPaul from the beginning so I put it together and I called my friend in Nashville. I said, you don't by any chance know these two guys that I'm now working for. And it all started to come together. Like, oh, how bizarre is that? That this, you know, my best friend is like tied in with this company that I now work for. Um, I love that company. Yeah, I love RuPaul. I watched his master class, which was fantastic. So wonderful. And um, Brooklyn Heights, who was on a season of Drag Race, was one of the my first guests on Hey Human. So that that's really a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, at this, we've had, uh, we have hosted RuPaul in this very house um, at a dinner gathering. And then um, before all the RuPaul Drag Race stuff, that whole series started happening, RuPaul loves games. And he used to have game nights at his house. And I used to go to them. And um, there was a, a monthly charades game at RuPaul. Like, uh, like, there, like for example, you do a round where you take movie titles whose um, names were like sort of turned into porn titles. <laughs> <laughs> so like um, you know clear and present danger might become like queer and present stranger <laughs> or um, you know Forrest Gump might become foreskin gump yeah. right? <laughs> you have all these people that are you know acting this stuff out and then there was one month where the party fell on um, Cher's birthday so it was Cher AIDS <laughs> so all the, all the charades had to do with share titles. I was I was impressed by, and this seems silly because of course RuPaul would have a presence given it's RuPaul, but there is this deep well to RuPaul that is so beautiful. I I was just drinking it in when I was watching the master class and and. There's an elegance to RuPaul that's regal and and yet so approachable and lovely and warm. Uh, it's such a it's a wonderful combination. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Like any time I've interacted with RuPaul or anybody affiliate, because there were a bunch of other um, you know queens in that whole um, in that whole set, the club kids. You know, I never would have thought that I would have known. So, so bizarre the way the world takes you know, our lives, right? Because, you know, some of them worked at World of Wonder, you know, not just RuPaul. Yeah. James St. James, who wrote Disco Bloodbath, you know, that'd be the whole Michael Alex story. Um, oh, who would yeah. work in that office. And, um, you know, I forgot so about Michael Alec, that whole craziness. <laughs> yeah, it's all, that's the thing that's so interesting about, you know, all of these... All, all of these things is that their, 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 their roots go so deep into things that you don't necessarily think. Like the thing, one of the things that's always been interesting to me about World of Wonder was, I guess how they got their name was from this guy who used to, he used to go around everywhere with a camera. His name was Nelson. And he used, to, this was the 80s in New York, and he had videotaped everybody. And he, um, his life's ambition was to put all of this footage together into something that made sense. He was going to call it Nelson's World of Wonder. And he had finally gotten to a point where he was going to start doing that, you know. And then he died, just suddenly. And so there was this treasure trove, this archive of footage of all these figures from the club scene in New York in the 80s and I guess Randy and Fenton put it together and you know it's been screened places you it's probably on YouTube but you know what I mean and that sort of was the beginnings of their company and the documentaries that they did early on and the Paul stuff that they did early on you know never mind by the time I got there but I always loved working for that company I met them at that party. They were, were lovely. When I first started working there, my memory, my earliest memory was the buzz that was coming. I guess they were, um, it was Sundance, and it was um, Inside Deep Throat, which was a documentary that they had produced, which was great, and it had all these amazing figures in it like giving commentary and um so it was very exciting because it wasn't just television it was features it was documentaries it was um you know this kind of buzz it was, and then i saw inside deep throat 
uh, came out, as well as um, on like HBO. And in and there was one night I was like channel surfing, and I happened upon Inside Deep Throat on HBO, and then Inside HB Inside Deep Throat on HBO LT. And I was like, well, what is HBO LT? I'd never even noticed that before. So I turned it on, and it was um, Spanish language. And so all of these figures, like Helen Gurley Brown, and, you know, anybody else who was interviewed, they were dubbed. Like, they had to, like, go and, like, cast voices to dub all these things that these people were saying and what I learned was that my Spanish is horrible because I had been watching it in English until I had flipped the channel and then I was trying to follow it in Spanish and <laughs> hilarious I was not I was not where I should have been <laughs> I love it one of the things I really enjoy about hanging out with you and we've been on a few adventures together is that you really are a person who says yes. And and I think that in a world of a lot of no and a lot of othering and a lot of, oh, that's not about you, you are so open and saying, yes, let's do this. Why not? Let's just jump in. And I just, it's a lovely thing to be around, for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I try to. I mean, I do have to struggle against the impulse to say no, because there is also the impulse to want to curl up in the fetal position and not face a lot of racket, not face a lot of noise, not face a lot of everybody's opinions or self-promotion. Like there are some things that I, you know, do have a different conventions for example where everybody is going to hand you a flyer and say come to my gig or you know this is my new cd and all of those things that you know like you get hit with so much of that that you know to you can't say yes to everything but you know i'm also fortunate that i don't have to necessarily i don't have children to look after i have you know a job that i don't work every single day of the year you know like I, I work three months on three months off typically and that kind of thing but the gift that I wanted to give to myself as a teenager was um, that I wanted my life to be a unique experience and that I wanted to surround myself with people that were like exciting and like great at everything you know great at what they did experts who knew some things who had been some places who had some stories to tell who had some songs to sing um and so you know i say yes to those kinds of things i try to say no to things that are dreary but i'll tell you like i'll <laughs> <laughs> but there's no telling there's no telling what I'll say yes to because like for example like I went up to um, Santa Barbara to uh, a friend of mine was doing something at the Santa Barbara Film Festival and when I met up with her she had an actor with her um, who was Belgian and I knew this guy looked familiar to me you know like I kept staring at him and like then I just when we started chatting I decided to like impress him with some of the Belgian cinema that I've taken in because for whatever reason like I will say yes I will say yes to anything so I go to I would go to see a lot of Belgian movies and I had just seen this one I said to him, I, I just saw this great one called The Ardennes that uh, was kind of like a Tarantino movie. And he goes, I was in that. Oh. You know? <laughs> and then he told me his character. Was, I was like, that is exactly right. You know, you were him. <laughs> and then, like, I brought up this other movie, and I said, like, 
oh, it's this title, it always escapes me, but it, it used Americana music. Like, it was a story about these people, and they played, these Belgian people, they played Americana music. It ended up being a really, really sad movie, but it had this really great music in it. I can't remember the title. It goes, I was in that too. What, do you I, remember I, it now? What was it? I forget. It was, oh. I, I, have to, I have to look it up because it's like one of those titles I always forget. Yeah. Which is becoming, you know, more frequent. But it was a movie I loved. You'll have I, to I will, let me know and then I'll put it on the link stage. Yeah. I will. I will. I will. Yeah. yeah. Because it was great. Um, and the music in it is great. And the film itself, you think it's going to go one way and it does not. And so in that regard like it's just all around excellent so yeah but yeah i mean um, mark how can people find you on the facebook (laughs) well you can find you can look up mark islam on facebook or you can look up mark islam at twitter i will put it on Um, there you would be a great candidate for instagram because of all the places you go to and i feel like went (laughs) well all right went sure 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 (laughs) Thank you so much for this wonderful well, conversation. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed talking with you. I can't wait till I get to see you again. I know. Like in, in, in real life for something fun. It's coming Hopefully again. Hopefully that won't be deadly. Yes. Well, let's <laughs> hope not. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and stay out of hospitals and uh, morgues. How about that? We'll go do something that's a little less crazy. That's the deal. <laughs> I love that's you dearly. And it's so good to see you. Thank you for being on the show. And as always, I'll go through this episode and put all the links together for things that we talked about. And, I, when you remember that movie, you text it to me and I'll put it up there. Yeah. Very good. I love you. I love you back. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, everybody.